0: Hi, Vicki. Hi, Shane. So now that it's summer, I guess, man, we're we're halfway through summer Are at we? this point. Well, I guess not technically. Summer starts, what, the 21st? Of t- okay, this is not the point of our prompt. <laughs> now that it's summer, do you have any plans to travel? Or, or have you done your kind of quote-unquote summer travel already?
1: No, I haven't. Actually, in August, my my husband is going to Scotland for like three weeks, which is very exciting. But what that means is that I get to go to, I'm going to go to the Poconos, for more oh. <laughs> than a week, and have just like a really long, slow week. It's going to be great. That's Relaxing. exciting. Yeah. What
0: are you going to do? Any
1: um, swim, probably. Hopefully, a lot. Watch movies. Nothing.
0: Not having an itinerary. Play
1: about in the woods. Yeah. What about yeah. You? For those
0: of you who aren't familiar, uh, the Poconos are oh. in I guess like East Central Pennsylvania, or rural Pennsylvania. Very beautiful. Oh yeah, beautiful part it of the is state. really beautiful.
1: Where I'm going specifically is like more north. It's like right where Pennsylvania, New York. New Jersey touch. Gotcha. Obviously, I had okay. to say New Jersey in the conversation.
0: I know. Gotcha. Every single thing we talk about. <laughs> yeah. Actually, funnily enough, I'm in Pennsylvania right now. Oh. If, if anyone with a discerning ear can tell, I sound a smidge different. I'm in a bit of a different setup. But every summer, I take three weeks off from HAU and I teach a field course for undergraduates. As we are in this moment, I am sitting in the assistant director of the field station's office because it's the only place that has good enough internet to do this.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Wait, so are you teaching about lizards or herbs? Or? I'm
0: teaching about, it's a disease ecology class, oh. but we do lots of really cool stuff. Yeah, we go out. I, I, We do catch like frogs and salamanders cool. and lizards. We catch turtles. We were doing plant stuff today. And one of my favorite parts is we get a lot of experts from different uh, federal agencies and state agencies and different things. And folks come in and talk about rabies. And do you know how you detect rabies or test for rabies in raccoons?
1: Do you have to kill them?
0: Oh, the caveat—they're already dead. This is like roadkill oh. stuff.
1: Oh, oh, oh! Uh, their brains, brains.
0: You decapitate them. Yeah. Mm. It is for the betterment of raccoon populations, all mammal populations, and human populations.
1: I feel like you're going to end up on a list. <laughs>
0: Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon.
1: And I'm Vicki Thompson.
0: And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right, so I wanted to ask this question of producer Molly McGed. Hi, Molly. Hi, Shane. So are there any trips that you're taking this summer?
2: Yeah, actually, I'm going to Northern California and the Pacific Northwest on a road trip. And I'm super excited about seeing the Redwood National Forest. I've never been there.
1: Oh, I'm excited about that, too. Are you going to get to drive through one of those tree tunnels? That's the hope. (laughs) That's so cool. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. I went to, I think I went to the Redwoods. Well, I definitely did, but it was, goodness, years ago. I don't even remember it. But okay, so we could, we could talk about summer trips for quite a long time, but we're here, well, I guess we're discussing vacations. Why, why are we talking about vacations?
2: Yeah, well, it has to do with like our topic today, which is glacier tourism. So we've been seeing like as the planet is heating up due to climate change, there's been a big demand for people to go see glaciers. And so that's been heating up as well.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, Okay. So I bet this means lots more people swarming to get a look at a patch of melting ice, essentially.
2: Well, that's a bit depressing, but I guess in a nutshell, yes.
0: (laughs) You're welcome.
2: Yeah, so like as the glaciers are changing, the way that people can go, see, experience them, that's changing as well. We talked with Dr. Heather Purdy. She's a glaciologist who studies both glaciers and glacier tourism in Christchurch, New Zealand.
3: I'm Heather Purdy. I'm a lecturer, uh, um, associate professor at the University of Canterbury in the School of Earth and Environment. So I'm a physical geographer and a glaciologist. So my research area is snow and ice and glaciers. So the kind of things I explore is looking at how our snow and ice, how our glaciers and seasonal snow respond to climate change, how, they, how the way snow and ice is changing impacts other things like our use of snow and ice from both a recreational perspective and from things like glacier tourism, how changing snow and ice influences people where we go and what we do. So how did you get interested in this work? I grew up not that far away from Aoraki Mount Cook National Park, like in a small rural town called Waimati. And and so a family holiday went to Aoraki National Park when I was only about seven years old. And that's when I first saw a glacier. And I can remember being incredibly fascinated by the fact when I was told by the park rangers there that you know glaciers had once been you know, way larger than they had, you know, before. And there's this idea of ice ages. And so I thought that seemed very cool. My first glacier project I, as a researcher was actually on the Fox Glacier on, in southwestern Taipotani National Park on the west coast of the Southern Alps in New Zealand. And it's a very fast responding glacier. It's it's. Well-known, tends to be well-known and does attract a lot of visitors. And I started there many, many years ago as a master's student, you know, measuring the speed of the ice and and how fast it melted, how fast the ice flowed. I'm a field scientist, so I had a very intensive field program because that's what I like, you know, walking around on the glacier every single day for a few months. And at the end of that, actually, because I worked very closely with the company that was doing the glacier guiding at the time, they were um, Fox Glacier Guides and they were an immense help at. The the guides, like when I was out working on the ice, they would bring the clients over to me to have a chat about what I was doing and and took a real interest in what I was finding out and and wanting to pass that information on to the clients that were coming to visit the glacier. And so we we did training with them, helping sort of upskill the glides and learning better, like learning more information to pass on. And so at the end of that stint, I got offered the chance to work as a glacier guide which I said yes to because I just thought that seemed like the coolest job out and it was great and so I did some time there as a glacier guide as well and so and it was fantastic because I still today sometimes think that when you've got a group of people behind you and you've got them on the ice and they're actually there they're touching they're feeling they're they're seeing they're looking at crevasses and that that you've got this real sort of captured audience and and it's a great opportunity to talk about climate change and so it formed this really neat working relationship which then led to me becoming a Glacier Guide for a while which then of course has led to my real interest in in how things like Glacier Tourism are being impacted by Glacier Change, how they can contribute to education but also how they're being impacted by climate change.
1: That really does sound like a cool job. So being outside in a beautiful, remote location, climbing mountains, teaching people about climate change.
0: But it's not as exciting as co-hosting this podcast with me. Right, Vicki? Right, right, right Vicki.
1: So I wonder if Heather <laughs> has any favorite part of doing this work.
2: Yeah, she talked about how she just loved to walk up the mountain and then actually introduce people to what a glacier looks like
3: for the first time. One day when I was walking up the valley with a group of people and we were actually getting really close to the to the getting onto the glacier that was in front of us in the valley and a lady said to me, oh, when are we going to get to the glacier? And it, it really, you know, and you kind of it did make you chuckle, but it also really reminded you that for many people, it, it's such an abstract concept if they've never been, they've never grown up around mountains and around snow and ice, like they, they have actually no idea what they're, where they're heading to or what, what to expect. And another thing that's really different for people is a lot of people have experienced snow. So a lot of people know what it's like to walk through soft snow, or they may have been up to a ski field and things. And, and so a lot of people get quite a surprise when they actually get to a glacier, because particularly. On the lower parts of the glacier, the area that we call the ablation area, where it's hard ice, and that's where a lot of the activity, like a guiding activity occurs, and where a lot of the places, where a lot of the work I do there, it's completely different. It's it's nothing like snow at all. And if you trip up and that on a glacier, it's A, it's very slippery, and, you, and but it's also really hard. It's essentially, I always used to say to people, you know, it's like falling over on concrete. It's not like falling over in the snow.
2: Yeah, I definitely would have not pictured that when thinking about a glacier. So I, because of your experience, I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes. How broadly have glaciers changed since you were a guy just by seeing them? And then how,
3: how does the science back that up? I was actually just back at Fox Glacier just two weeks ago just to do some more round of monitoring. And it's quite shocking how fast it's, Receding, you know, from those days where I know, you know, where I was fortunate to see its most recent advance. Which that advance started at around 2004, 2005, and culminated at about 2008, 2009. And so, ever since 2009, Fox Glacier, along with many others in the New Zealand Southern Alps, have been receding, and we lost about one over a kilometre, over a kilometre of ice in the valley in terms of length and, of course, in terms of ice thickness. That's, you know, 150 sort of thickness, a kilometre long, has all gone in just in that time. And, and so it is a really shocking how quickly recession can happen. And it's one of the things that's part of my research is looking at what we call feedbacks. So the things that change as the glacier is getting smaller that actually make the rate that it's melting increase so we kind of call these things positive feedback. So it's like a feedback that it, a change that is happening gets kind of enhanced due to some of the other things going on. You know, as the glacier is sort of getting thinner and we start to get sort of dust and debris melting out of it, we get very thin. If the surfaces of the ice are just a little bit dirty, they actually can absorb heat and melt faster. And one of the things that those of us that have been studying snow and ice for many years are very aware of is that at the very top of the mountains at the moment, for you know nearly the last decade now, at least for the last seven or eight years, we've been losing more mass, more volume that they you know going into the top of the glaciers high in the mountains than we're gaining. So we know, I guess I know when I go there and see a very retreated glacier, I also know that there's nothing going into the top over the last few years to turn that trend around because we always have a delay. So glaciers, are these; they respond to climate, but there's always a delay and it takes a certain amount of time for that snow going in at the top to be compressed into ice and to flow down the valley to reach the glacier terminus, the end of the glacier, which is a thing that most people engage with when they're going to visit a glacier as a tourist or as a recreationalist. And so if you've not been getting enough snow going into the top, you're not building up a reservoir to flow down to the tongue, and and I think that's one of the things that's most dramatic at the moment is we've you know year upon year we've been seeing the, the top of the glaciers showing that they're not getting as much input, which means this thing, this retreat, this recession we're seeing at the terminus, there's nothing to turn that around as yet. I mean glaciers will respond to shorter term regional tra- trends, and we've seen that with the recent advances at fox and Friends glaciers that re- react quickly can react to decadal trends, but certainly in the last decade, there's been nothing going on up high in the mountains that's going to return you know, to turn this recession around. And that's the thing that's quite quite disheartening, I guess, a wee bit, quite shocking when you you sort of see how small it is now, like the Fox and Franz josephs are the smallest we've ever seen them in recorded history, and they're going to get smaller in the near future.
0: This is a really uplifting topic we got here. I mean, losing one kilometer of ice in only 13 years, plus they're probably just going to keep getting smaller, right?
2: Yeah, well, it is kind of depressing. And that's part of the reason why Heather says it's so important for people to see these glaciers so they can really see, like, what climate change is doing.
1: That's a good point. So so Heather's talking about how glaciers are changing because of climate change, but how is glacier tourism changing?
2: Well, she started at the beginning, describing how glacier tourism used to work over 100 years ago and how it's changed over
3: time. Glacier tourism has been around for many, many years and at its sort of, its most basic and as its sort of original form was simply going for a walk from the valley floor. So, you know, and this happened at Fox and Friends Joseph and also over the other side of the um, Southern Alps and the Aureke Mount Cook National Park on the Tasman Glacier. And so, you know, guides would, you know, put, put, put people on a bus, drive them out a, a bit of a road and then people would get out and actually sort of just walk out onto a glacier, and, and when I first started guiding at Box, we were we did used to have trips from the valley floor, so you could take families, you'd drive them out the valley, you'd get out and you'd go for a walk, and you'd walk up the valley and then up onto the ice, walk around on the ice, and then walk back. So lovely trips, like real journey, all just, you know, under people's own people power, and, and of course, you know, reasonably affordable too, because it was just all about walking. They were walking trips. But what's been happening, particularly on the West Coast at Fox and Friends Joseph, is as the glaciers have been receding and so they have been getting smaller and shorter, the position that the glacier terminus is, is getting further up into the mountains and, and sort of ending up in an area that's much steeper and with much in the thinning, is meaning there's a lot more exposed rock around. And you know, we've started to see this increase in rockfall from the valley sides that actually meant that the walking access, like walking from the valley floor, just wasn't as safe as it used to be. And this meant that the walking access was abandoned and all the trips at both Fox and Friends Joseph now helicopter supported. They always did helicopter trips. It was always like the sort of top end, you know, you could either go for just a walk from the valley floor and walk around on the glacier, on the lower part of the glacier, or you could catch a helicopter, fly higher up onto the glacier and walk around up there. And so there used to be a choice with that. But now using those helicopters to access the glacier is the only way those trips are running. So what we're seeing is we're sort of, you know, it is a bit of a paradox in many ways. You know, we've got climate warming because of our use of fossil fuels and CO2 emissions and our glaciers are reacting to that and yet one of the only ways that we're we're actually accessing the glaciers to see them and educate people about them. Is and by using helicopters. The other thing that's been quite interesting in terms of glacier recession and glacier tourism is over in the on the eastern side of the Southern Alps, you'll see that big valley glaciers have formed really large what we call proglacial lakes at at their terminus at the end of the glacier. And so we've seen also some diversification in tourism. So like it the Tasman Glacier. We actually have companies that operate boat tours and kayaking tours. So instead of actually getting onto the ice, what they are doing is putting people into um watercraft, you know, boat you know, powerboats or you know, kayaks and having a look at the icebergs and paddling around the lake that way. So it's sort of this evolving thing, you know, as the lakes are receding, they're also as the glaciers are receding, they're kind of creating these lakes that for some companies are presenting new opportunities and providing different ways of engaging with the glacier.
2: Now that the glaciers are melting and creating these lakes, it reminded me of a lot of the talks around climate adaptation. Like it sounds that tourism is adapting to these changes and May even lead to new or different modes of tourism, so I'm curious what you think what the future of glacier tourism is or or what what you think might change or be different
3: yeah so that yeah it is it is a, a, is adaptation the you know I think the lake first started forming back in nineteen ninety so it's an a, and the trips are not, trips started not to probably by about year two thousand or so, so they've been running for quite a while now, but you know. As each glacier retreats, the the kind of terrain it's in will will dictate to a certain amount, but will dictate kind of how that glacier can be interacted with it from a tourism perspective. And so, but we are seeing adaptation. And even just a couple of weeks ago, over on the west coast, we were shown a sort of new trip that the company that's normally done the guide the guiding on the hard ice and are still you know still running hully hikes, but they've also got e-bikes now and they're taking people up a, a road that you used to be able to drive up that now, because of flooding and things, the road's not maintained to a standard to have a vehicle anymore, but you can still ride a bike up it. And so they're actually got running e-bike trips to then walk people to a glacier viewing point. So that's that's great. That's a, a form of adaptation that's providing a, a low-cost option option people to be able to still engage with the glacier and you know when they're taking them on that journey they can you know show people where the glacier used to be and and talk about some of the processes so yeah so we are starting to see these organized these companies thinking outside the square a bit and thinking okay how do we still give people a glacier experience but at the same time you know perhaps thinking of different ways of doing that
2: do you think that if the glaciers disappear? People
3: will still go to see them. Will there be tourism in those areas? Because of where New Zealanders and because of the way the sort of amount of precipitation, the amount of rainfall we get, where our Southern Alps are, where we kind of sit, are situated on Earth, um, well, there'll be glaciers. There'll always be glaciers for the foreseeable future. It's just they'll be a lot smaller and they'll be much higher in the mountains. And yeah, so you'll sort of, so it'll become a sort of different, a different sort of trip. But you will still be able to go see them. But you, you'll need to go a lot further, and the thing is, they are still really amazing locations. They're alpine locations. They've got incredible mountain peaks and, you know, steep sort of bluffs. And in some ways, when when the glaciers pull back, you know, the severity of the landscape, the scale of it's almost revealed, even in its in, in a, a more full way. Tourism is definitely something that will evolve, and people will still go to see these. These, you know, there's some incredible lakes and things, you know, often a glacier retreats and you get an amazing lake left behind. And so the landscape will evolve with climate and there'll still be, there'll still be tourism. There'll definitely still be tourism and people, but what people see will be, will be different. And it might be more that they're looking at, you know, a glass, a trail, a, a track that is, you know, a, a glacier trail that sort of follows where the glacier used to be and and shows the key kind of neat landscape features that they leave behind as opposed to walking up and just having it right there in front of you so but yeah so they will need this adaptation they will need people's perhaps expectations it's all about expectations sometimes too what people are expecting to see and what people actually see but yeah certainly like you know the New Zealand Southern Alps are incredibly amazing and beautiful anyway and even with less snow and ice on them, they're still going to be majestic and the rock faces will be incredibly impressive. So, and the lakes will still be beautiful. So I think for these little communities that are really reliant on tourism, they've still got an amazing place to go. And I guess there'll be a transition of people starting to, you know, for many years they've relied on the glacier being the draw card that's brought people to these places because everyone wanted to go see the glacier and if the glacier gets harder to see it might just be a matter of reminding people of the other things they can do there and the other neat things they can see. Hmm. That's really bittersweet like it's it's it makes me feel better
2: that like people will still want to go to these places and they'll still want to see them and and support the towns and the people who live there but at the same time it's that they're not maybe not going to be even able to see the glacier anymore and that's that's really striking
1: okay so it sounds like glacier tourism is going to be around even when the glaciers aren't
2: yeah that's right so Right now, there's a lot of interest in seeing the glaciers before they melt, but even when they change and become more difficult to see, the landscapes will continue to be really striking and unique.
0: Right. But so I'm struggling with this idea that seeing these glaciers might involve burning a lot of fossil fuels that contribute mm. to climate change and to the melting of the glaciers. How is glacier tourism dealing with that contradiction?
2: Well, Heather says that the glacier tourism industry needs to start thinking about that, how they can become more sustainable. I
3: think up till now, I think like a lot of things, it's been very reactive. You know, um, as the glaciers changed, the approaches to getting people to the glacier has has responded to a change. So a more reactive thing, something happens. So we solve that problem. And I guess what, needs to happen in the future is becoming more proactive thinking a bit longer term and thinking right well if this is gonna what what can we do to have a tourist product that's more sustainable what thing you know what options can we put on the table so I think it's important for people to be thinking about that and if they are going to visit a glacier utilizing aircraft you know like can they offset their carbon you know can the companies offset their carbon or can the people offset their carbon or you know just sort of trying to think about how can if this is the way we're going to get people to glaciers how can we make that more sustainable because it is you know because certainly getting people to the glacier is i think quite important in terms of connecting them to them and helping helping educate people ag- ag- about climate change getting them to actually care getting them to actually think wow you know perhaps i do need to think about can i take the bus or ride my bike to work instead of driving by myself every day or you know there's just getting people to maybe reflect on their own lifestyles yeah, we had a really cool project actually um working with department of conservation at one of the managers there Wayne he was he's really passionate about these things and he had this vision for developing interpretation in the glacier valleys you know as they're being faced with having to push push the viewing points further back up the valley and he kind of put together we kind of brought together the glacier measurements like the glacier was here at this time and then on the back side of his signs he um developed he got people to work with people to develop kind of neat little climate messages about all that this you know things you could do so kind of as they walk up the valleys now in the French Joseph Glacier Valley. When people now walk up to the glacier on the way up, they see these neat interpretation panels that talk about how big the glacier was and when the glacier was here and there. And and then when they turn around and walk back out, there's these cool little messages about ways to reduce their carbon footprint, which I think is really cool. Because yeah, certainly, when we were talking to people there, like for a lot of them, they, you know, they are there because they've kind of got an awareness that things are changing and 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 that's why I think this maintaining the ability, it does for a lot of people this need to see things with their own eyes to really get on board with things. I'd love to see more of that around the place, you know, the kind of blending the environmental education with some, you know, the sort of glacier tourism or alpine tourism with some cool little messages about living more sustainably. It is one of those times where
2: you can reflect on your own life and say, what things can I do so that this is a place that continues to be available for all people to to see and to interact with and to have their own moments of realization. Like I want this to stay around. What can I do? So I think that is, that is
3: a, a positive thing, even though it can be difficult. And I think that's, is a really important thing going forward is because the last thing you want is to people to, to essentially give up and think there's nothing they can do. So, yeah, so it it is really interesting times. And I mean, we've seen this really cool climate report come out in New Zealand. And there's been some great conversations on the news about electrifying the vehicle fleets and stuff. And I mean, all that stuff will help. eh? we've got to just kind of keep somehow keep people's initiative and and, and, um, momentum, momentum to keep going in the right direction.
0: So, Molly, what is the answer?
2: I think it's complicated. I think everyone needs to consider what they can personally do to try and make their travel more sustainable. Can you take a bus? Can you go see something nearby? Can you think about offsetting the carbon from wherever you're going? And. Those choices shouldn't make you feel like you can't go on vacation, but it should just make you consider how to make that vacation more earth friendly.
1: So probably kind of like enjoy responsibly.
0: I think that's probably a good a good slogan to have and for many things, but yeah, especially with this. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all do our part personally and be thankful for folks like Heather for their work. All right, folks. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun.
1: Thanks so much to Molly for bringing us this story and to Heather for sharing her work with us.
0: This episode was produced by Molly with production assistance from Jay Steiner and audio engineering from Colin Warren.
1: And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please rate and review us. You can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com.
0: Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. um okay so uh we're talking about vacation um yeah and so i i can talk about being up here yeah right because this is what it is do you have any summer plans mine was
1: pennsylvania too
0: oh here we go all right we'll do that i'll ask you okay you can do pa i'll do pa we'll giggle that'll be great
1: okay (laughs) (laughs) there you go there you go Ha -ha -ha. Ha ha ha
3: ha ha ha